You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. 53% of organizations believe detecting insider threats has become significantly harder since migrating to the cloud. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She's speaking with Peter Draper from Gurukul about their 2020 Insider Threat Report. And we are back. Joe, why don't you start things off for us this week? Dave, my story is coming from my personal life. Okay. (laughs) This is the season of giving, right? Yes. And my wife is purchasing various gifts and things from places she doesn't normally purchase things from. Right. And she has gotten two of these emails that have come into her inbox, and she sent me both of them. And the email looks to be coming from the United States Postal Service. Hmm. The email reads, greetings. Parcel delivery attempt fail notice on, and that has a date and a time. Mm -hmm. And it says the delivery attempt was unsuccessful because no one was present at the delivery address. So this notice has been automatically sent. Mm. You can arrange redelivery by contacting us with your postage reference number in the e-voucher here. And then here is a link, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. We'll get back to that in a minute. Here's the the fear part. In the case the parcel is not scheduled for redelivery in 14 days, it's going to be returned to the sender. Right. right? Thereby ruining Christmas for everyone. Exactly. Now, my (laughs) wife had something that she was expecting. Okay. Right? This is how this works. She is expecting something. She fears immediately that what she has ordered is going to be sent back and she's not going to be able to get it and it's going to hang in limbo. And this, yes, yes. exactly. Ruining Christmas for everybody. Right. Okay. So she sends this email to me and goes, is this real? And mm. I said, probably not. But mm-hmm. the first thing I do is I take the URL, I, I right click on where it says here mm-hmm. and I say, copy URL. And I go to a website called virustotal.com. Ah, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And in there, you can paste a URL if you click on the URL tab, and it comes up as malicious. Mm. Right? I tell her the URL is is malicious. Two sites identify it as malicious. So this is probably fake. Yeah. So the next thing I do is I fire up my Kali Linux VM, and I don't advise other (laughs) listeners do this. As you do. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. As I do. Yeah. Uh-huh. 90% of the people out there, 99% of the people out there are not going to do this, but right. I do this. I okay. fire up my Kali Linux VM uh-huh. and I open a web browser and I enter the uh, URL in the web browser and it downloads a file. All right. And it, it is a file that ends in .img. Okay. okay. An image file. An image file. But that is a disk image. And when it shows up on my Kali machine, it looks like a little CD, which means it's a mountable drive. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a virtual hard drive or virtual CD. Right. So I go ahead and I mount it. Now, I don't know what happens in Windows because I didn't do this in Windows. Yeah. Right. But I think if you double click on it, then Windows will automatically mount it as a drive. Mm. And then inside of that drive, there is a file called voucher underscore PDF dot EXE. Right. right. And that is the malware. Ah. Right. What I do is I take that and I copy that up to VirusTotal as well. And lo and behold, of course, that file is malicious, very malicious. Many, many of the sites find it. And what it is, it's a malware dropper. Okay. It goes out and installs some malware. So you don't even know what kind of malware it's going to get unless you decompile it and look at it, which I didn't go through because I didn't have 
that kind of time. Yeah. But I have saved it for a couple of our PhDs who teach classes on this thing, this mm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they will do that. Right. <laughs> They'll take it apart and see where it's going or have their students do it as a research project. But this is exactly how this kind of scam works, how this kind of installing some kind of malicious software on your machine. It could have been ransomware. It could have been just a key logger or some kind of banking Trojan, mm-hmm. anything. But this is how it works. They send out these emails to hundreds of people, thousands of people. It's cheap for them to do that. They give you a fright in the event that you have ordered something because you think about this time of year, there's a high percentage of people who probably have something arriving in the mail right now that they're expecting. Mm -hmm. So they're capitalizing on that. Then to click on the uh, images looking for this number so that they can respond to it. And once they click on that executable, the game's over. Now, there's something else about this file name as well, right? The way that it appears in Windows, there's something tricky about that? That's right, Dave. There is a default setting in Windows, which I always change whenever I install Windows. And it's uh, hide file extensions for known file types. Mm. Right. And you can Google how to unhide that and you'll find a very simple way to do it. It's it involves going into the file explorer, clicking on the view menu and, and going into the options and finding some settings. But if you don't have that set because executable exe is a known extension, Windows won't show it to you. So it will look like it just says voucher underscore PDF. Mm hmm. So they're trying to trick you into thinking that this is just a PDF file. Yeah. The good old, safe, harmless PDF file. Right. right. (laughs) Good old, friendly, fuzzy, furry PDF PDF file. Yeah. And nobody ever does anything malicious with a PDF file, right, Dave? Well, yeah, that's a good point, too. You know, it's funny, but you can put an extra dot in here. I don't know why these guys didn't call it evoucher.pdf.exe, because that would have been more effective. Mm -hmm. But they did call it evoucher underscore PDF, and... If you're not technically savvy, that might not set off a red flag to you. Sure. And think about how many folks are just like your wife who mm-hmm. but may not have someone like you that they can send it to. Right. And uh, they're curious or they're scared that they're not going to get the stuff that they've ordered in time for Christmas yep. or whatever. And and they get them. They get them. Yeah. Uh, how do we protect against this? Well, never click the link. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the first thing. Be vigilant. Generally, the U.S. Postal Service will not send you an email if you think about how this happened, right, it's plausible. Chances are my wife gave the the merchant that she bought these things from an email address. Mm-hmm. And then maybe that merchant told the USPS what the email address was, and maybe the USPS sent the alert. Not what happened, but it, it's plausible. It's a plausible explanation for how you got it. But, you know, vigilance is really the key. Having an up-to-date antivirus that watches out for malicious websites as well would would protect you here. But, you know, just not clicking the link is the best option here. It's worth noting that the address that this came from, the email, was USPSstore.com. Right. Which is plausible. There's nothing unusual about that. Yeah, that's a good point, Dave, because the United States Postal Service website is USPS.com. Mm-hmm. And if you type in USPS.gov, it redirects you to USPS.com. Hmm. So USPSstore.com is a good malicious link in terms of well-crafted. I mean, right. Not, not good, but <laughs> right. it's a bad right. link. Don't go yeah. there. It doesn't call undue attention to right. itself. Right, it doesn't call undue attention to itself. Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, keep an eye out. Tis the season, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. All right. Well, my story this week is from CTV News. This is out of Canada. It's uh, written uh, a story by Nicole Bogart. And this is titled Police Warn of New Phone Scam Where Criminals Intercept Your Calls. Mm. Uh, this was out of Toronto. Now, the root of the scam is a uh, something that is familiar to us. This is a thing where the bad guys call you and they say that uh, someone's trying to steal your identity 
and you need to connect with the police to make this right. And, right. and you need to give the police information or the police are going to walk you through transferring your funds to protect your funds from right. these bad guys. It's, so yes. at, at the root of it, it's one of those things. But there's an interesting twist here that uh, I think is worth sharing. And that is in the technical execution of the scam itself. Hmm. So you get a call and these people say there's a problem. We've detected a problem on your uh, mobile device or your computer, and you need to call the police right away. Here's the number. You go to call the police, and the folks you're calling are not the police. Right. It is the bad guys. Yes. And they're using a technique called line trapping, hmm. which I was unfamiliar with. And basically what they're doing is they're they're tricking you into thinking that the initial call was terminated, was ended, when in fact it wasn't. So what they do is they say, you need to call the police right now. Here's the number. And then one of the ways they do it is they play a dial tone sound. So huh. you think you've got a new line. Right. Is this on a landline? Could be on a landline, could be on a mobile phone. Now, remember who we're probably targeting here. Yeah. Probably targeting folks who don't even think about hearing the sound of a dial tone. Right. Right. So you hear the sound of a dial tone. you dial in the number. Of course, it's not actually going anywhere because the original bad guys never hung up the phone. Right. Then they play a ringing sound. Uh-huh. Someone answers and says, you've reached the police and off they go. Right. So you think because you've made this phone call, that's instilling in you a sense of security that this is an independent call. You made this phone call, the police answered, and this must be real. Right. I was not familiar with this line trapping thing. So I actually reached out to a friend of the show, uh, Ray Redacted. We've okay. had him on before. Reached out to him and said, I I've never heard of this line trapping thing. What could it be? And he said, what they do is, he responded, he said, they spoof a dial tone to make the victim think they have a new call. The victim dials the police number and the scammer plays a recording of ring noises. In reality, the first call was never disconnected. Uh, he said you can prevent this by calling yourself, by making sure that you've hung up and, and making the call. He also uh, interestingly said that they often they'll use a Raspberry Pi and a Linux PBX package mm -hmm. to make the whole thing more believable yeah. rather than using, you know, recordings and, and so on. Right. There, there are open source PBX packages run on Raspberry Pi that will let this happen remarkably easily. Yeah. So uh, it's an interesting wrinkle on this scam we've talked about before. I, I suppose the way to protect yourself is to make sure that the phone call is actually terminated. Right. When somebody calls you and says you need to call the police, look up that number. Mm -hmm. Don't don't call the number they give you. Never call the number somebody gives you and never give information on inbound calls. Right. Always say, I'm going to call you back and then go look up the number for the person who has allegedly called you and call that number. Right. Because they'll, they can just as easily give you a fake phone number yeah. that when you call, they answer right. pretending to be who they want you to call. Absolutely. And that's exactly what the, that's sort of what's going on here. Yes. All right. Well, it's an interesting one. One to, uh, to watch out for. I don't know. My advice when someone calls and says, you know, there's something going on and you need to respond to this right away, just hang up. It's like a fake virus scam. You know, mm -hmm. you got a virus on your computer. No, I don't. Goodbye. Yeah. All right. Well, that is my story. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from a listener uh, via Facebook. This is someone who uh, received a friend request on Facebook, uh, accepted the friend request, even though he really wasn't sure who the person was. Mm -hmm. And immediately this person uh, who was claiming to be someone named Dolores Lola 
Ochoa mm -hmm. started right in with a scam. Joe, I've uh, laid out the exchange here. Yes, I And see. I will play the part of Dolores, and uh, <laughs> you can play the part of our friend who is sort of stringing Dolores along. Oh, very good. All right, here we go. Hello, how are you doing? Good. I'm happy to tell you about the International Monetary Funding Company because they has changed my life to good. I got a cash of $150,000 from them after I get in touch with the claiming agent in charge. Have you heard about them? I has no heard of them before. Is monies good? How much monies can they have? They deliver a cash of $150,000 to me at my doorstep after I get in touch with their claiming agent, who's in charge. This is legitimate and real. Even one of my friend just got the money yesterday. You can contact them right now to get this $150,000. Can I send you the claiming agent info now so that you will get in touch and claim this money too? I love that, that Dolores has included a picture of a huge stack of cash. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's yes. awesome. Thanks you. Send the monies to my house now. It will cost you $1,500 before you can get this $150,000 delivered to you. Okay, send me the $150,000 and I'll send back $1,500. And then so the person who's leading the scammer along sends a payment request to the scammer for $1,500. Right. Can't you read? You need to contact the company agent and make your $1,500 payment before they can bring the $150,000 to you. Sure, go ahead and send over the $150,000 and I'll send back $1,500. Payment before delivery. What means delivery? The flight fees and charges. You will pay $1,500 first and then they will bring you a cash of $150,000. I know have it. Send the cash of $150,000 first and I'll get you $1,500. Promise. So send it now. No, that's not possible. And then he sends another request for Dolores to send him $1,500. Stop requesting money. How much do you have? Okay, they just send me $1,500 and I'll send it back. No. He requests $1,500 again. Stop requesting money. You were requesting money from me, you remember? I told you what you need to do. But I hasn't gotten $1,500. Will you let me borrow it? How much do you have? $9.31. <clears throat> I can only borrow you $1,000. If you have $500, you can let me know. I'm trying to sell things to make more monies. Go and sell them. And then he requests $1,000 from Dolores. Would you like to buy something? What? And then he sends Dolores a picture of a lava lamp. $25. Not interested. $23. Would you really want to get this $150,000? Uh, $21. $20. That's as low as I can go for the lamp. I said no. Okay, okay. $19, my final offer. And then he sends a $19 send money request to Dolores. GTFO. Are you dumb? <laughs> this is awesome. And it ends there. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is one of the best ones we've ever seen. This is this is fantastic. Yeah. I think the lava lamp really uh, <laughs> the lava lamp the is great. Trying to sell the lava lamp to the scammer really it's a it's a nice touch. All right, <laughs> that is our catch of the day. Coming up next, Carol Terrio speaks with Peter Draper from Gurukul on their 2020 Insider Threat Report. And we're back. Joe, it's always great to have Carol Terrio back on the show. This week, she speaks with Peter Draper. He's from a company called Gurukul, and they recently published uh, an Insider Threat Report. Here's Carol Terrio. So, guys, I want you to meet Peter Draper. Not the fictional character from Mad Men, but a security expert 
at Gurukul. Now, Gurukul is a company that is a global cybersecurity company that's trying to change the way organizations protect their assets and data information from both insider threats and external threats. Let's see what we can learn from Peter Draper, the technical director for EMEA, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. I can see why you need an EMEA acronym there. Yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you guys have done this threat report, and I wanted to first start off with what are the main findings for you? What were the things that struck you as really interesting in this report? Okay, so there's a number of key findings that came out of this. The ones that most people would be interested in are things like 68% of organizations feel vulnerable to insider attacks. That's a pretty big number from my perspective. If we look at some of the other key ones, let's just pull some of these and then I'll I'll talk about the ones that I'm interested in. So 53% of organizations believe detecting insider threats has become significantly harder since migrating to the cloud. Now, we all know cloud is a huge wave that's going to continue for quite some time. Uh, And the more we get there, the more risky things are and the more difficult it is to get visibility into there. So that's where some of the challenges come uh, in terms of getting that visibility. Because we hear a lot about cloud databases being hacked or not even having protection in place in the first place. Without a doubt. And that's probably the biggest vulnerability that's out there is incorrect configuration of cloud services, whether that be databases or even file stores. So S3 buckets in in AWS, having them not configured correctly causes some huge problems. And we hear lots and lots of reports about the number of credentials, the the amount of PII that's been stolen, and those are coming through daily. It is ridiculous, the amount of data that's available out there now from those sorts of attacks. So actually, maybe let's just back up. So maybe you could just explain, first of all, what an insider threat actually is and how it's different from maybe an external threat. Okay, so we classify insider threat as anything with any of the counts inside an organization. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's an inside individual that's doing any nefarious behavior. There are malicious insiders that, for some reason, may believe that the information that's available in the systems is theirs to take. They may be leaving the company or considering leaving the company. They may have a beef with somebody. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of the malicious insiders. There's then the unintentional insider threat. Uh, And that is accounts that could be compromised by clicking on a bad link, by being uh, attacked with malware, they've downloaded something, they've gone somewhere, they've watched a video, all of the usual uh, attack surface that's, that's available, that could be compromising their account. I can understand that you've got this kind of one circle of insiders, which are malicious, right? So these are people that are up to no good or trying to take data, as you explained. Then you've got these other insiders who, because of maybe they're duped by an external attacker into giving their credentials or giving access to some systems internally. So they may be acting out of lack of knowledge or lack of information or just, you know, they've been duped. Yes. And they're used by these external parties. Definitely. Their credentials are used in order to kind of access data. Is that fair? Yes, that, that is definitely fair. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we've got these people that are running cloud services are great. It allows people to work remotely and have access in real time to data everywhere. It's amazing, but people are not actually protecting it in the way it should be. So it's, it's not so much that these cloud databases have vulnerabilities that third parties are taking advantage of. It's more that people are not configuring it 
correctly. And that is what's leaving it open to ne'er-do-wells. Yes, definitely. The, the stats that we have at the moment are that 53% believe that detecting insider threats has become significantly harder with relation to the cloud. And I guess that's why it's so much more important that we authenticate the right people for the right data, because that's basically the description of a hack, isn't it? Is an unauthorized person has access to good solid data that is valuable. The proliferation of password attacks, stolen credentials, password stuffing, where attackers will try and uh, effectively spray the passwords onto any system that they can get access to, to see whether or not they can actually gain access because people share accounts, share passwords across multiple systems. It is challenging. Making sure people have the right entitlements and the right identity and access to the right resources is where a big portion of enterprise's time is spent. I mean, if you think a user comes into an organization, what rights do you give them to your systems when they first start? How do you know? Mm -hmm. We like to look at peer groups and provide information to the security guys that says, okay, in this particular department or in this particular peer group, these are the sorts of access that are required. So that's a starting point. Right. But what normally happens is users will come into one department, they might move to another department, they might get promoted, uh, they might stand in for somebody else during uh, some vacation or something. Mm -hmm. And each time that happens, they get given more rights. Yeah. We call those access collectors because they keep gaining access and getting more and more. I know this that was a secret to my power when I used to work in the corporate <laughs> world. I, after 15 years, I had the keys to most kingdoms, right? Yeah, you could get anywhere. Yeah, I could, you, yeah. You could find anything that was happening. Exactly. Definitely. I was yeah. a really good source of information. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big issue because organizations, unless they are forced by governance, things like HIPAA and, and, and the various regulations that are pushing people to check and to validate and to recertify people's access, organizations just don't do it. And if they do do it, they don't do it regularly enough because it's difficult to get that information. Right. So that is a really, really good point you're making. On the IT side, you're basically saying, make sure that rights are taken away as well as yes. given as appropriate to what they need the rights for. Yep. But two, and a user it would be really smart to be visiting IT maybe every six or 12 months. Tell me what you think of this idea and saying, look, I don't need access anymore to this. Please remove my user access. That would be the nirvana for the security guys, for the for the users to be coming to say, I don't need access anymore. Yeah. That really would. Yeah. Okay. So this is the Christmas present that all you listeners out there can give to your local IT guy. Tell them all the apps you don't need access to anymore and make sure they remove your username because then that clears you of any wrongdoing that happens in there as well. Because bad guys are going to want to try and get access to that. So if you don't have it anymore, no problem. Excellent point. Yeah. Cool. Okay, that's good. Now, tell me about, so 10 years ago, IT and users was the idea of it was like they were police. And yes. I think the industry has worked very hard to try and uh, say, look, security awareness is really important. We need to teach best practice, yada, yada, yada. But it's interesting how this might return us to a us versus them mentality. Yeah, definitely. But we like to involve the users. We think it's really, really important to involve the users in this. Whenever you start to talk about insider threat, all the users, and, and let's be honest, the users are the people that keep your business going and do the things that you need them to do for your business to work. So all of those users are, are critical to what you're trying to achieve as a business, but they are starting to think it's starting to become a, a them and us because they're talking about us being a threat. Yeah. Why am I a threat? Yeah. I, yeah. But I, I mean, this is, it, it's about engaging the users to be able to say, 
actually hit, look, this is what we're seeing on you. Do you believe this is true? If if you don't believe this is true, then let us know because yeah. we can then start to look at that and investigate it. So the two big takeaways I have here, make sure that if you're using a cloud service at home or in the office, that it is properly configured. And that means that only authorized users can access appropriate data at the right time. And number two is to actually remove accounts that we don't need access to anymore. It's a good business practice, but it's also excellent for all you home users out there. Peter Draper, Technical Director at Gurukul, thank you so much for sharing all this information. No problem. Thank you very much indeed for the time. This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. All right. Interesting interview. Yeah. Thanks to Peter for coming on the show. 68% of organizations feel vulnerable to insider threats. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish we had two different names for the categories of insider threats. Right. Like insider threats versus insider vulnerabilities. Yeah. Because I think that term insider threats makes everybody think that it's people who are intentionally up to no good right. inside your organization. And so much of it is not that. I agree with that. Insiders that are being attacked by an outside threat are not insider threats, right? They're victims of of an attack. Right. I agree. I think it's, it's unfortunate that we call them insider threats, but this is how most of these things work. 95% of malicious campaigns, the first kinetic action in those campaigns is an email that mm-hmm. somebody clicks on. Now, a person that, that clicks on it is not acting with any malicious intent, right? but they're still being classified as an insider threat. And that may not be right. But Yeah. The, the, yeah, the vulnerability is inside the castle walls. Exactly. One of the major points that Peter made was it's harder now that things go into the cloud. Misconfigured S3 buckets, S3 stands for, is actually, I think it should be 3S, right? Uh, <laughs> simple storage solution. Uh-huh. It's a, essentially just an Amazon cloud storage, and cloud just means somebody else's computer. Mm-hmm. And you're just putting things up on Amazon's drives. And then you can configure how access is granted to that. But essentially, because it's on Amazon's computers, it's accessible to the world, and people need to understand that. Right. They, and they misconfigure them. They forget to change the settings. Or they just change the settings deliberately. I don't know how. I don't actually do much cloud work right now. Yeah. I have done Amazon provisioning services for computers, and the way I configured it was for logging in, we didn't allow username and password. They had to use certificates, which yeah. is a little more complicated, but much more secure. I actually spoke to someone about this recently over on the CyberWire, okay. and uh, what I learned was that a lot of the configuration of these S3 buckets happens in an automated kind of way. Right. Yeah, so, it's scripted. Yeah, it's scripted. And so they get spun up very quickly. Often many of them get spun up at the same time. Uh-huh. And the development people are doing this and the security people aren't always aware right. that yeah. the development people are doing this. And yeah, that's, that's part of the disconnect. That's very com- I, You know, now that I work in security, and I, but I have worked in development mm-hmm. and one of the things that used to frustrate us in, in development was trying to get firewall rules set up or, or getting one service to be able to talk to another. And we'd have to go to the IT people that really wasn't a security organization back at that time and ask them to open a hole in the firewall for our services to talk to one another. And they, they'd have right. a bunch of questions and we would answer their questions and all that. But it was a frustrating barrier to getting our work accomplished. Mm-hmm. 
another interesting topic, and I, I've said this, and I've, I picked this up from a previous boss of mine. He said, uh, the higher up in the organization you go, the less privileges you should have. Hmm. Because if you think about it, the guy with the most that needs the most permissions is the individual contributor who has his hands on everything, mm-hmm. right? Hmm. If you're three layers of management up, if you're the CEO of a company, you don't need access to any of the code repositories. You don't need access to any of the S3 buckets. You just don't need it. Hmm. Right. Your job is management and leadership. It's not technical anymore. Now, that's interesting. It makes me think about, you know, in any organization, who's the person who has the big ring full of keys? Right. It's generally not this. You don't see the CEO walking around nope. with a big, ro- big ring of keys jingling o- on their hip. Right. It's the custodian. It's the custodian. Right. 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 Yeah. That person needs to have access to every. And who do you go to when you need to get into a room? Yeah, go to the custodian or go to the security folks. Right. Uh, We actually actually one of the things I do when I go into a new building is I immediately make friends with the uh, facilities and custodian. Yes. Yes. That is such a good social engineering, Joe. Thank you. (laughs) It's so important. (laughs) I I do the same thing. It's so because they have access to pretty much everything. And they know when things are going to happen before other people do. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy I used to work with. His name was Sam. And I'd say, hey, Sam, what's going on? Any any new office changes going on? And he'd know. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, that's funny. There's something else here they were talking about when it comes to access, and that's how people build up the amount of permissions they have over yeah. time. They were saying that it would be nice if, if people came to the security folks and said, I don't need these permissions anymore. Mm-hmm. That's never going to happen. No. It's just, that, is, no. that is wishful thinking. Yeah, I, it's, I think it's human nature to, to kind of hoard those right. privileges. It's, yeah, either they want to hoard the privileges because they like having them, or they, it's just not top of mind for them. You know, they leave mm-hmm. the organization, they don't think about it. Either way, the organization is going to have to conduct its own security audits. This is called the principle of least privilege. You get the least amount of privilege you need to do your job. Yeah. A lot of organizations these days who are looking at something called just-in-time privileged access management, mm-hmm. which is basically you only have access to the things you need access to right when you need that access. And as soon as you're done needing that access, that access goes away. Right. And there are automated systems that manage this to to try to attack this problem. So you don't have privileges building up. You only have what you need when you need it. And you can't just go looking for something that you looked at a month ago without making another request or or something like that. Or maybe it's just during, you know, it's automated so that during business hours, you know, when you sit down and log in from a particular computer, you have access to it as long as you're logging in between you know, 7 a.m. and 5 or 6 p.m., mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, After right, that time, right. you don't have access to the data. Right, right. So, if, yeah, if you're logging in in the middle of the night from a computer that's somewhere in China, right. it's going to say, hmm. um, this doesn't look right. Right. No, you can't <laughs> yeah. have the privilege access right, right now. Right, right. That's a good idea. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again to uh, Carol Terrio for bringing that story to us, and thanks to Peter Draper from Gurukul for uh, joining us on our show. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 